Let's pray. Father, all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One come down. We pray it in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to read one verse from Daniel chapter 6. Turn there if you will. Daniel chapter 6. And I am reading verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Perhaps you have not heard the older Sunday school song that was quite popular 50 to 70 years ago. It was titled, Dare to be a Daniel. The chorus goes like this. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. Daniel is one of the great exemplary characters in the entire Bible. All of us are sinners and have fallen short of God's glory, but that's not the fact that the Bible highlights in Daniel's life. The Bible tells us about Daniel to show us how a righteous man, person, stands within an evil culture and hard circumstances. It reveals how God's sovereignty using one godly man works out in the life of a pagan culture. Daniel was carried away with thousands of other Jewish youth to Babylon, modern Iran, in Judah's captivity. He and others were specifically selected to be the young elite in the Babylonian kingdom. Through a remarkable chain of providential circumstances, Daniel ended up virtually assistant to the king, Nebuchadnezzar. He was one of three governors directly serving under the king. This morning, however, I intend to highlight just one crucial aspect of Daniel's high character, his prayer life. And I would ask us to dare to be a Daniel in prayer. I do this because if there's one practice of the Christian life that is most neglected among today's Christians, it is prayer. We don't live in a praying age. We don't live in a time in which churches and Christian children and college students spend much time in prayer. There's almost no preaching and teaching on prayer compared to those of the past. Prayer is short, it is weak, it is perfunctory. I've come to believe that this neglect of prayer is nothing less than sinister. Satan has a vested interest in cooling the fervor of Christian's prayer. 
He knows that prayer is God's chosen way of accomplishing much of his massive work in the earth. So Satan will do virtually anything to keep God's people from praying and praying well. Obviously, in our time, he has been a rousing success. He wouldn't be a rousing success if more of us lived and prayed like Daniel. That's precisely my goal, to urge us by the power of the Spirit to dare to be Daniels in prayer. First, dare to be a Daniel in principled, principled prayer. Daniel's uh, political colleagues, called satraps, were very envious of him. They wanted to bring him down from his high perch. Interestingly, they could find nothing in his work habits by which to accuse him. In other words, Daniel did his job, and he did it well. That, too, is an example for us. Christians of all people should be the most diligent and faithful in their work. What a blotch on the name of Jesus Christ when professed Christians have shoddy work habits. That was not Daniel. He was not merely wise and loyal. He was diligent, and he was provident. So these satraps were forced to bring Daniel down in one way and one way alone. Create a scenario in which his godly principles would conflict with his political status. Daniel, you see, had a reputation for godliness. Do you? Do I? In chapter 6, verse 5 there, it says, Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. What a revival we need today of the law of God. We live in a profoundly antinomian time. The law of God is neglected. It is perverted. It is belittled. It is slandered. Because the law isn't a means of our justification, many Christians throw it out the window. I would ask them to slowly read Psalm 119 and then consider whether they think themselves more spiritual than David. The law of God is a reflection of God's holy character, and he has called us to be holy. To attack the law of God is to attack the character of God. To attack the law of God is to attack the nature of God. To attack the law of God is to attack God. The Holy Spirit is given to us so that we can obey the law of God, Paul writes in Romans 8. Therefore, to be antinomian is to be anti-Christian. One command of the law of God is to pray. Daniel's pagan colleagues knew that this man was a man of prayer. He was a man of principal prayer. In other words, he formed the habits, translated there perhaps custom in your Bible, the habits, the customs of prayer from his youth. Now, we live in a time drenched in romanticist notions that spontaneity is king. In in the church, this means that godly habits and customs are considered subspiritual, while spontaneous, carefree, spirit-led Actions truly please God. Nothing could be further from the truth. The same spirit who leads prophets to speak 
spontaneously leads them to spend time in prayer every day at the same time and in the same way. Godly habits and customs aren't somehow less spiritual than godly spontaneity. I urge you, like Daniel, to set aside time, a custom, every day to pray, to call out to God. Make a prayer list. There's nothing whatsoever sub-spiritual about a written prayer list. Unless your memory is superhuman, there's no way you can remember everyone and everything that you need to pray for. Now, it might not be necessary to pray through the entire list every day. I don't pray through all of mine entirely every day, but you probably do need a list. In fact, if you can remember every person and everything you want to pray for, I suspect that your prayer life is quite paltry. Your memory isn't good enough to recall everyone and everything you need to pray for. From a youth, Daniel had learned to pray. It was his custom. We'll never be people of prayer until prayer becomes a custom and a habit. If we wait until the exigencies of the moment to pray, we'll never be people of prayer. Prayer is a religious observance in the very best sense. Jesus prayed at customary times. It's a principle of the Christian life. Every day we must acknowledge God as our Almighty and our Father. Every day we must glorify Him in prayer for worship. Every day we must bring our requests to Him. Every day we must show that we rely entirely on Him for our life, our breath, our provision. To go day after day without that kind of prayer... I'm not referring simply to hurried prayer over meals. Is to go day after day without any communion with the one in whom we live our lives. Daniel refused to compromise his holy custom of prayer. But principles don't admit of compromise. Preferences can be compromised. Principles can't. Daniel had heard of Darius' foolish decree, the new ruler, that for 30 days no prayers could be made to any person or any god except the king. The king loved Daniel, but Daniel's conniving colleagues, most of you here know, had persuaded him. Notice, please, what Daniel did not say. He did not say, well, I can pray silently in my heart. A prayer in the heart is just as important as a prayer out loud. No. Some of the old-timers were inclined to say Daniel's was a religion with windows. He opened his windows like he did customarily and prayed to the Lord God. It's astounding how timid and embarrassed we Christians are about prayer. And we're not even facing a den of lions. Yet, When we're eating at a restaurant, we're too timid to pray aloud in a normal tone. Too embarrassed to stop with a sinner or a friend on the sidewalk and pray. I suspect, sadly, we're actually ashamed of Jesus Christ. I suspect we don't want to be thought of as too religious. But we are religious. We're the people of God. And we rely on God in prayer. And the more an unbelieving culture knows this, the better. We don't pray to be seen of men. 
like the New Testament Pharisees. But we also don't hide to avoid being seen of men. So then dare to be a Daniel in principled prayer. Second, dare to be a Daniel in petitionary prayer. Chapter 9 of Daniel, verses 1 through 19, consists almost entirely of Daniel's prayer for his people Israel. They were suffering so pitifully in Babylon. They deserved God's judgment for their sin. But he appeals to God to relieve his people. Listen to verse 17. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. God invites us to come boldly in the name of Jesus Christ for help. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 tells us. God delights to do good things for his people. One of the great errors of false prayer piety is the notion that it's self-centered to cry out for God to help us and give us good things. That idea is both counterproductive and perverted. When we pray and when God answers our prayer, he does two things besides helping his people. First, he increases our faith and the faith of those people around us. We see what God does in answer to prayer, and that increases our confidence that he will do even more. Second, God displays his own glory in the earth by acting on behalf of his people. Note that after Daniel was delivered from the lions, King Darius issued a major proclamation honoring the Lord God. Prayer, answered prayer, makes a deep impression, not just on Christians, but also on non-believers. Answered prayer, therefore, helps us to foster and undergird a Christian culture. Do you desire to glorify God? Do you? Then pray big prayers and get big answers. You say, Andrew, that sounds sort of self-centered. No, actually, that's God-centered. That's God-centered. God tells us in James chapter 4, verse 2, we don't have because we don't ask. If someone says, well, that's too simple, well, then you're basically asserting you're smarter than God. If you need money for college or grad school, ask God. If you desire a godly husband or wife, which is a good thing, ask God. If you need physical healing, ask God. If you want your parents or brother or sister or other relatives to trust Jesus Christ, them being unbelievers, ask God. If you're having a problem with a friendship, cry out to God. If you need a seat on the train or plane, it's fully booked, ask God. Don't assume that any request is too small. To say that a request is too small for God is to say that God is not interested in every aspect of your life. That, of course, is false doctrine. Obviously, this truth implies that we should be praying all the time, both customary prayer, perhaps several times during the day, and scores or hundreds of very short prayers throughout the day. A three-word prayer, a seven-word prayer. 
if we understand that God wants to do good things for us and to meet our needs throughout the day, then obviously we'll be in communion with God the entire day. That, by the way, is what it means to pray always. Because we have small needs throughout every day. I sometimes hear Christians imply or even state that God is committed to consistently testing and trying and bruising and hurting his children for his own glory. I say without mitigation that this is slander and blasphemy. Jesus tells us that God is our Father, and if we, as his sinful fathers, like me, love to do good things for our children, how much more does our Heavenly Father long to do good things for those who ask him? In fact, Jesus says so in Matthew chapter 7. Question. Are you or I a better father than God? I don't wish to harm and bruise and test my children. Then why in the world do you think God would want to do this? True, he does allow Satan to tempt us and hurl hardships in our way from time to time. But this is almost always Satan's work and not God's. In all things, Romans 8, 28, in all things, God is working for good to those that love him. Daniel knew that God was not only a righteous God. He also knew that God, because he is a righteous God, righteously loves and cares for his children. God sorrowfully sent his children into captivity because of their persistent sin. Yes, he will do that as a good father and a good God. But he was even more eager to forgive and restore them than he was to send them into captivity. God is eager to forgive those who will make one turn toward him. One little turn. God is eager to race to forgive. I urge you this morning to pray about everything. And by everything, I mean everything. Church and college and health and friends and family and money and fatigue and parking spaces and animals and allergies and phobias and gardens and grass and airplanes. And if you think these are trivial, what you're really saying is God is not interested in the details of life. But the one who knows every sparrow that falls and counts every hair on our heads cares deeply for every aspect of our lives. Therefore, pray about every dimension of your life. Pray about everything. And pray always. Finally, dare to be a Daniel in persevering a prayer. We now meet Daniel as an old man in chapter 10, verses 1 through 14. I hope that you will read this later. Guess what he's doing as an old man? He's still praying. He's on his face before God. For 21 days, he's been crying out for God to restore his people to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. 21 days on his face before God. Would you do that? Would I do that? If not, why not? He's met on the banks of the Tigris River by an angel in great splendor and shining attire, so blazing in glory 
But the other Jews accompanying Daniel scampered away in fear. The angel then made a remarkable statement to Daniel. He wanted to assure Daniel that from the very first day that Daniel had begun begun fasting and praying, from the very first day, God had heard him and had dispatched this angel with a message. However, the angel said he'd been impeded by the prince of Persia on the way to bring the message. There's little doubt about the meaning of this figure, this prince of Persia. It's a fallen angel to whom Satan had given jurisdiction over the Persian Empire at the time. By the way, we can learn from this that Satan has great interest in political rulers. And these demonic beings influence modern politicians for evil. For 21 days, Daniel persevered in prayer. He didn't take the path of some of us, the falsely pious, Well, I I prayed for two long days and God didn't answer. Therefore, it must not be in his will. Daniel did not say that. Listen carefully. It's not our responsibility to discover the will of God beyond the word of God. God's will for us to discover while on earth is set forth in his word. This is his prescriptive will. His decretal will is his secret will is known as secret for a reason. We don't need to know it. My friends, never pray in terms of God's decretal will. Pray always in terms of God's prescriptive will. Daniel was a persevering prayer warrior, and God answered him because he persevered. God relishes persevering prayer. Jesus himself taught this. Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. I have a question for you. Do we believe that? You say, well, the problem, Andrew, is there are a number of prayers that aren't answered. Yes, I'm painfully aware of that. I do understand that. But I would rather deal with the difficulty of some unanswered prayers than try to explain away all of the promises of the Word of God. Don't try to rationalize these promises. Do we believe the Bible? Do you believe the Bible? Then believe this. From Daniel, we know that many times, not always, our prayers aren't answered immediately because of the great spiritual warfare in the heavens, literally just above us. And if you say, well, Andrew, that's just kind of fanciful. and We've lived since the Enlightenment, and we know that that doesn't really happen. (laughs) What we're really saying is we know better than the Bible. Listen carefully to the next thing I'm saying. God has chosen not to annihilate Satan and his forces, but to get the victory for his people through great conflict over sin. There's a difference between those two. If you think about that for a minute, it'll help you understand many things about Christianity and the Christian life. God chose not to annihilate sin, but to defeat it. God could annihilate sin today, but he has chosen not to do that. He has chosen to defeat sin. This means that he allows Satan and his host to continue their work for a time. 
God refuses to give Satan the satisfaction of accomplishing his will by simply abolishing evil. God accomplishes his will by defeating evil. Fundamentally at the cross and the resurrection. This means that there are great battles that we must fight. There are great battles in the heavenly realm. And many of those battles include angels arriving after a time to answer our prayer. So persevere in prayer. Therefore, if you are praying and praying for a long time and your prayers aren't answered, don't stop praying. Say, well, Andrew, what if I just keep praying and praying and praying all the way to the end of my life? That wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Don't assume just naturally that your prayer, if it's in line with the word of God, isn't in God's will. Only rarely in the Bible does God reveal that the prayer of a godly person is not in his will. In the vast majority of cases, he answers the prayer of his righteous people because righteous people tend to pray righteous prayers. This, by the way, distinguishes biblical prayer from the heretical health and wealth gospel, from the prosperity gospel. God, get me a Lamborghini before breakfast next Thursday. God's not interested in answering the prayers of worldly narcissists, and that's not what this is about. But he delights to answer the prayer of his righteous people who wish only to please him. He delights to answer their prayer. We are at Runner at a Worldview Academy, and I'd like to state as emphatically as possible, persevering prayer is an indispensable component of the Christian worldview. Ideas have consequences, but ideas alone won't change anything. We must have ideas that are fired with the power of the Holy Spirit in response to the prayers of God's people. To embrace the Christian worldview is to embrace the prayer worldview. If there's to be a great revival, a great reformation in Canada, in the States, in England, in the Ukraine, it won't arrive merely as a result of the power of ideas that we assimilated runner. They're necessary but they're not sufficient. Those ideas must be backed up by principled, petitionary, and and persevering prayer. In conclusion, if we are constantly accepting the status quo, we cannot be people of great prayer. If we constantly are looking around Well, this is just kind of my lot in life, and -and so-and-so's been very sick for a long time, and I really can't get a job that would help me to get married. And I guess that's just sort of my lot in life. If I say your attitude is, I'm going to accept the status quo all of the time, you and I cannot be a great person of prayer. Because prayer is asking God to change the status quo. And he gets glory when we pray, and he does that. You say, well, Andrew, that's rather fearless and bold. Yes, it is. That's how Elijah prayed, and Elisha prayed, and the prophets prayed, and how Jesus prayed, and how Paul prayed. 
Would you like to know why the influence of the Christian faith on the world is so paltry, so anorexic? Why? Well, there are a number of reasons, but I would submit to you this morning, one reason is that we are not people of expectant prayer. We're not on our face before God, repenting. We're not on our face before God, praying for great revival, great reformation, great obedience. We're praying little, timid prayers. God is not pleased by little, timid prayers. So I just want to be careful here. I don't want to like pray like big prayers. I mean, it just would be like a little scary, and God might be upset. Actually, as you read the word of God, the opposite is true. Whenever anyone came to Jehovah in the Old Testament, or Christ in the New Testament with some prayer, never did they say, oh, don't ask me that. That's way too much. But again and again, God and Christ say, why didn't you ask more? Why didn't you ask more? Do you remember the story in the Old Testament of the king who came and said, I want victory. And the prophet said, take the arrows. Remember this story? And cast them on the ground. And thus will be your victory. And he takes two or three arrows and casts them. And what did the prophet say? You fool! You should have cast many, many, many more times. And then you would have a great victory. Why? Is there such weakness and failure in our own lives? And victory over sin? Because, my friends, you and I are filled with unbelief. Unbelief is a damning sin. Unbelief is a terrible sin. God honors great faith. Even if we have, even, Jesus said, even very small faith, God will honor it to a small degree. But let us have great faith in God. Let us then pray with great expectation. A.W. Tozer once wrote, Faith without expectation is dead. So if we get on our knees before God and say, Lord, we're praying, and at the very end our attitude is, well, he's probably like not going to do that, but I did my duty. Don't expect God to answer. Let us pray with great expectation. And now for a final suggestion. During the free time today, throughout the rest of the week, the weekend, why don't you grab a couple of friends, perhaps new friends here, and spend some time in prayer? Even if it's only five or ten minutes. Why don't you spend time crying out to God and asking him to send a great revival, a great reformation. Ask him to use the runner Academy to raise up an entire generation of godly warriors. You tell me, why shouldn't he do that? So, well, there's only like 40 or 50 of us, and it's like, God probably wouldn't start it here. Why? Well, I mean, I don't know, but he probably just wouldn't. A dear friend of mine now deceased said, history is not dominated by majorities. It is dominated by minorities that stand unconditionally on their convictions. Will you do that? Will I do that? The great revival 
And the apostolic church started with 12, and then 120 in an upper room praying. And within three centuries, the entire Roman Empire was brought to its knees because they were people of prayer and obedience. Ask God to answer your prayers such that the world will look and see his glory. Let us make runner a haven of prayer. Let us not be filled with a wicked heart of unbelief. Know that God is a good God, eager to forgive sin, who longs to send a great revival, great reformation, who delights in the hearts of his children when we are delighted. I leave you then with the final two verses of that song, Dare to be a Daniel. Many giants, great and tall, stalking through the land, headlong to the earth would fall if met by Daniel's band. Hold the gospel banner high, on to victory grand. Satan and his host defy, and shout for Daniel's band. Will we be Daniel's band? Here's what I'd like to do differently today before Rick comes to lead us in a great Reformation song. I would like a young woman, one young woman and one young man, or older woman, an older man as the case may be, to pray. Lady first, and then the man. We speakers are praying all the time. I want you to pray. One of you, two of you rather. One woman and one man. Pray that God would send us a great revival. A great reformation that he would start it here. No one will think you prideful if you feel God leading you to do that. Is there? Raise your hand. A young lady, would you be willing? A young lady, you start. And who is the young man that will pray? You pray first. Dear friend, and then you pray, and then Rick, from there, will you lead us, please? Yes, ma'am.